this is the in focus podcast from the hindu hello and welcome to another edition of the in focus podcast i am your host g sampath the 27th summit of the conference of parties cop 27 as it's called is underway in egypt and will conclude on november 18th This year's event comes on the back of extreme weather events that seem like a trailer of the climate catastrophe that awaits the planet. We've had epic floods in Pakistan, heat waves in Europe, wildfires in Australia to name a few, and one theme that has figured prominently so far in this year's conference is climate finance for mitigation and adaptation. Developing countries annually need an estimated 2 trillion dollars to cut their greenhouse emissions and adapt so that the world is on track to meet its net zero targets but will the richer countries which account for 1/8 of the global population but half of all emissions fulfill their moral responsibility in this regard and what happened to their promise to commit 100 billion dollars annually from 2020 onwards and the other big theme this year is what many activists feel is an attempted return to fossil fuels in different parts of the world apparently as a temporary measure but which if it goes through could get locked in for a longer term and in this episode of in focus we take a closer look at how these issues are playing out in cop 27 and we are joined today by professor otmar edenhofer director and chief economist of the potsdam institute for climate impact research Uh, Professor Edenhofer, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. It's a great pleasure and honor. Uh, Professor, you're one of the foremost scholars on climate economics in the world, and today the biggest challenge for climate economics is finding the money for developing countries as they seek to fund their mitigation slash adaptation measures. With COP twenty seven coming to a close uh, very soon in a couple of days. where do you see this mitigation slash adaptation finance for developing countries which are really more vulnerable coming from yeah that's a that's a very tricky question but uh, let me first highlight where we are worldwide so uh, still the emissions are rising so we have seen the latest data for 2021 so we have uh, Uh, achieved uh, a historic record on emissions so we have not bent the curve and in addition to that so uh, because of the ukraine war the gas price has been increased faster than the coal price so many countries uh, started to use even more coal uh, we are since 10 years in the middle of a, a renaissance of coal in in many parts of the world and also what what we can see is if we do the calculations right uh, the coal fired plants alone around the globe would emit over the economic lifetime roughly 330 gigaton co2 which is uh, basically the the whole carbon budget um uh, which is consistent with the 1.5 limit so and without a, a reasonable plan for phasing out coal um so we will close the door to the 1.5 uh, limit uh, almost in an irreversible way so th- this is basically where we are and the phase out of coal has definitely uh, a high priority so with that uh, at cop 27 the, there are a few very interesting initiatives 
the Just Energy Transition Partnerships uh, with Indonesia, with uh, South Africa. So now there are discussions with India to do this. I would say this these are more promising uh, pathways. But the problem is, as you mentioned, is to phase out coal. So money is needed. And where does the money come from? And, and this is indeed uh, a, a huge problem. So there is there, there are now a little bit money on the table for this Africa and, and Indonesia. But, but by and large, uh, we would need uh, 2 trillion US dollars per year external funding to, to finance such a transformation. And it is fair to say that by and large, uh, the financial issue uh, is not resolved and it is very unlikely that it will be resolved by the end of this week. Uh, Professor, you spoke uh, a very important point about phasing out coal. And on this issue, I just wanted your thoughts on where India is coming from. India has been saying, let's not talk about phasing out coal, let's talk about phasing down uh, coal. And there is also this sense uh, in India and other countries that there seems to be some kind of a differential treatment for different fossil fuels. I mean, they are all greenhouse gas uh, emitting uh, problems. But then uh, there is this focus on coal and India uh, has uh, certain issues in this regard. How do you look at this phasing down versus phasing out a kind of a debate which is going on this year? Uh, for me, the most important thing is we should start. So it's important then, and it, it is a money issue. So let, let, me, let me put this a little bit in perspective. First of all, I agree with you that greenhouse gas is greenhouse gas, or at least that's right. But nevertheless, coal is an, is an important issue because coal alone, the cumulative emissions of coal alone would absorb the, the carbon budget for the 1.5 limit. And here on uh, other infrastructure, committed emissions from other infrastructure components like uh, transport or like buildings are not taken into account. So in that sense, there is a, a priority. But the most important problem here is that we in, in Europe, we always thought uh, renewables are cheap. The levelized costs of electricity for renewables are declining, and that's right. But the problem is the technological progress made over the last, uh, let's say, uh, 20 years in, in the renewable energy sector, in the reduction of costs, has been overcompensated in many countries in Africa, also in India, by the increasing capital costs. And the increasing capital costs have outweighed almost completely the technological progress made in this sector. So, and these capital costs are, are essential and therefore it is absolutely crucial that we come up with a financial architecture which reduces the capital costs for countries who would like to phase out coal and would like to phase in a higher share of renewables. So this is, from my point of view, one of the most important things that uh, we create a, a financial architecture, uh, an incentive structure, which reduces the capital costs. This is the first important thing. The second important thing is we need finance channels for adaptation. Uh, that's number two. Number three, we need funding for loss and damage. And of course, loss and damages in, in many parts of the world cannot be uh, handled with the normal insurance scheme. So these are idiosyncratic, uninsurable risks, and therefore funding has to be provided. And then the last thing is uh, the financial architecture has to take into account ongoing natural disasters. And for example, for the poorest countries, 
uh, debt service should be suspended in, in this case. So these are, the, from my point of view, the, the four most important pillars. Reduce the capital costs for carbon-free technologies, find finance for adaptation. Uh, we need funding for loss and damage, and we need also debt uh, service suspension for the natural disasters. Along these lines, I think we should think about a new uh, financial structure. Right. Uh, you have correctly pointed out the need for a new financial structure, a financial architecture, and also the need to reduce the capital costs and find, find funding channels for adaptation. So in this context, uh, I mean, there have been lots of data and estimates and commitments which have been coming in over the years and this year too. And uh, one of the clear uh, takeaways is that the kind of commitments which are being made, especially with regard to uh, mobilization of private capital, hasn't been coming through. So in this context, what one, uh, one proposal which has come up is to impose a windfall tax on the profits of oil and gas companies, uh, which just for three months in a year is estimated to be $100 billion, which is exactly the kind of commitment which is needed. So do you think this is a viable thing that we could look at, a windfall tax on the profits of fossil fuel generating, uh, fossil fuel using companies? Uh, I'm, I'm definitely uh, in favor of, uh, of a kind of a carbon pricing scheme. Uh, a windfall profit basically means that we, uh, we tax away the increasing profits this is basically a rent taxation that might be an additional good thing. But by and large, I feel very comfortable uh, when basically carbon pricing is used, carbon pricing in, in the richer countries to finance uh, part of these financial needs. That, that would be a, a twofold benefit. The first one, carbon pricing creates an incentive to move away from fossil fuels. Uh, it, it makes carbon-free technologies more competitive on the market but it also mobilizes the resources, which then can be used uh, for the reduction of interest rate, for financing adaptation, funding loss and damage, and also to finance the uh, debt service suspension. I, I think that would be a, a, a very encouraging sign uh, if, if we could agree on, on such a proposal. Right. And uh, speaking of, uh, again, this question of a windfall ta tax and carbon pricing, it has been pointed out uh, by many climate activists that there is a record number of 600 uh, plus delegates from the fossil fuel industry who are attending at COP27 this year. And uh, this has come in for a sharp criticism, like, I mean, given their actual role uh, so far, historically, how do you see their contribution in COP27? I mean, wouldn't they be naturally looking to protect their industry interests? Or do you think they can be part of the solution as well? And especially given the fears that after the Russia war, there is a gold rush, so to speak, towards more and more fossil fuel projects. So how do you view this uh, scenario here? There's so many delegates coming in and pitching in. As you know, so the fossil fuel industry is, is definitely part of the problem, but they have to become part of the solution. Why? Because in the end, what will happen is any meaningful climate policy has one very profound logical implication. And the logical implication of the 1.5 target or the 2 degree target in the Paris Agreement has one fundamental implication. The majority of resource and uh, reserves of fossil fuels has to remain underground. And this means that the assets of the owners of the fossil fuels will be devalued. And I can only think about the solution 
if if this industry is 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 part of this because they they have to help phase out the fossil fuels they have to accept that there will be a carbon price or windfall taxes imposed on the use of of fossil fuels and and they have to look at the alternatives like hydrogen uh, like renewables so this this is from my point of view a, a very important part and we know that the fossil fuel industry almost in all countries are very powerful coalitions and and to convince this coalition uh, to move along these lines is very important i see uh, in this context a very important role of the multilateral development banks because the multilateral development banks are to a certain extent sleeping giants so they could basically provide much more loans at lower interest rates why because uh, the shareholders of the multilateral uh, development banks are governments and not and not private investors but on the other hand when when the multilateral development banks increase their loans for carbon free projects, this would mobilize uh, additional uh, private money. And I think this is important to understand that we should not rely only on on public money, on public finance. We have to use public finance and the incentives in a way which helps us to to mobilize uh, also private capital. Right. Uh, speaking of this whole debate over uh, public uh, capital and private capital, I mean, one of the points which uh, many climate activists have been saying is that the Ukraine war, I mean, this is the first such conference which is taking place as the war is going on. And the war has definitely uh, caused a rise, a sharp spike in gas prices, which is again done two things or doing two things. One is, of course, it's it's sort of uh, pressuring governments to look at cheaper options such as coal. And secondly, is it also, do you think, limiting the ability of countries, the the West, the, especially the Western countries, to set aside public funds for climate assistance to the poorer countries? Yeah, that, that's a, a very, a very important. At least there, there's a risk, and, and let me let me iterate what I said at the very beginning. So, one of the the most important and profound global impacts of the Ukrainian war is that the gas price. Uh, increased much faster than the coal price, and this makes coal uh, in the power sector much more competitive, not only in Europe, but also in, in Asian countries. They use now more coal in the power sector in order to sell their gas on the global LNG markets. And uh, basically also in Germany, we use more coal now uh, because we can no longer afford to use gas in the power sector because we need the gas in the heating sector and, and also in the industry sector. And, and of course, uh, so the gas prices in Germany, for example, have been uh, increased tenfold compared to the pre-war level. And uh, this basically puts an enormous pressure on the competitiveness of our industries, but also on low-income households in, in, in Germany. Germany, for example, has uh, used uh, 200 billion uh, for compensation packages uh, domestically. So this is an enormous amount of money. And indeed, uh, there's a risk that, uh, that, that the money uh, for climate finance is, is, is reduced. But one way to overcome this is indeed uh, to use, for example, the multilateral development banks, but also to use some of the revenues uh, for carbon pricing and what you said, also the windfall taxes, because the, the profits in the gas industry and in the oil industry are enormously high. And, and to do this and to finance and to use this money then for climate finance 
is from my point of view, would be at least a very encouraging sign. Right. Now, I, I want you to come in on, on, a, on a question which is really sensitive and, of course, probably very divisive as well. And this is something which uh, climate activists have been sort of pushing for from day one. And this is uh, the question of climate reparations. You spoke about, in, the, in the context of finance, you spoke about addressing the rising capital costs of renewable uh, technology. You spoke about financial challenge channels for loss and damage and so on. But uh, one thing which... Uh, we haven't touched upon is the question of climate reparations. I mean, it's clear that historically the richer industrialized West have been the biggest emitters of greenhouse gases and uh, and the sufferers uh, so far have been the vulnerable poorer countries who didn't have the agency to decide on those kinds of fossil fuel choices which were made. So what is the general view in the West on the question of climate reparation. Do you think there is any kind of appreciation of this question at all? Or is generally, is it being is it dismissed as, as, as not really something that could be taken seriously? Yeah, that's indeed a, a very delicate question. And it, it is taken seriously. But as you know, uh, including uh, Germany, so Germany dismissed to pay climate reparations in the sense for the past damages. So uh, paying for the, for, the, for the past images. Uh, because the richer countries uh, would argue that this is basically almost then in the end an, an unlimited uh, liability. And, and from my point of view, I'm, I'm very much concerned that this debate on climate reparation in the end uh, would, would, would lead to a, a kind of a, a, a blaming and shaming game between between the richer and, and and the poorer countries, and in that sense, I feel that the climate reparation story is 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 probably not not very helpful to come up with a reasonable uh, agreement. It seems to me much more productive uh, to talk about the, the the future loss and damages, and that the richer countries acknowledge that the loss and damages uh, caused by climate change, in particular by the extreme weather events. So there cannot be insured by the, the global insurance market. So this is not possible. So and in that sense, I, th I think there's an ethical obligation of the richer countries uh, to, to help countries which are uh, vulnerable to, to the extreme weather, in particular to extreme weather and, and to natural disasters. It seems to me that that's important and they should acknowledge that, that public money uh, uh, is needed to, to help them to deal with such disasters. But we should be aware that the most important prevention of future disasters is emission reduction now. Because uh, if, we would, if we would risk that there's an increase of global mean temperature above two degrees or something like this, so we would see an enormous increase of global damages which cannot be insured by the global insurance market. So this is a huge risk. So first, the first priority should be today to reduce emissions. And here, uh, the richer countries have to provide their fair share in emission reduction. And over the last decade, they failed. So this is something which we should uh, we should be very clear about this. But on the other hand, uh, when it comes to, to adaptation and, and, and the loss and damage, I, I would say uh, there is some, uh, uh, some compensation and some support is needed. And it should be provided by, by the financial system. And I, I, my feeling is this would be a much more productive debate than, than, than uh, climate reparations. Of course, uh, there is uh, some truth in it that 
if you have done some harm, you have to compensate for this harm. But but the problem is that uh, uh, it is it is very controversial. What is the the order of magnitude of of, of that harm, the past harm and, and the future harm, and this makes the uh, the negotiations very very complicated and probably not very productive. But one thing I would like to to emphasize also. So uh, the richer countries have already promised uh, some money and, and they haven't delivered. And this is something which has not increased the trust uh, in in the governments of the richer countries to deal with uh, to deal with this issue of loss, damage, and, and adaptation. And and I hope uh, that they understand that during COP twenty seven, but also in the preparation of the next COP, that this trust building issue is is absolutely essential. Right. It is, of course, a delicate issue indeed. But uh, at the end of the day, uh, the richer countries uh, cannot really sort of uh, uh, escape to a different planet, not right now. So I guess they have to sort of find ways to uh, to keep the developing countries and the poorer ones on the same board and work to find ways to work together with or without uh, this question being addressed. One final question, uh, Professor, before I let you go. With just uh, a day or two uh, before COP27 concludes, can you just uh, quickly tell us what for you have been the key takeaways in the negotiations and talks in this year's summit and how the, the core issues you have outlined, how they are playing out? Concluding remarks on this question, please. Uh, first of all, I think it was a, a, a huge step forward that we have now this official debate on loss and damage. And, and as you said rightly, uh, so the richer countries cannot escape to another planet and we have the moral obligation to support countries who are uh, vulnerable to, uh, to extreme weather events and to dangerous climate change. So this, this was very important. Secondly, that there was a debate on, on phasing out coal as a, an important priority and the just energy transition partnerships uh, basically, we, we saw sort of as a resurrection of, of these issues and, and this could be expanded more. And I find it also very interesting that basically this, um, the, the debate on the financial architecture, uh, this was uh, not necessarily part of the, of the official debates, but that there is now uh, an emerging consensus that we need a new financial system uh, which sets the incentives rights and, and supports uh, the, the poorer countries, funds losses and damages, provide some help uh, when um, natural disasters happen. So this is something which, which I feel is a, a step forward. So by and large, uh, I think, at least I hope, uh, that, that we have a, a, a modest, reasonable outcome uh, of COP27 so that we can move uh, forward. And let me say the, the last word, I think, uh, the trust building issue that that really the the rich countries understand that they have to deliver what they have promised this seems to me is very very important right i think you've you've sort of uh, pointed out uh, really four important uh, takeaways one of course tamping down on the what seems like a resurgence of coal uh, loss and damage of course and uh, coming up with a new financial architecture to sort of ensure that uh, we stay on track and of course trust building between the richer countries and the developing countries. Thank you so much, Professor Ednohofer, for joining us and sharing your thoughts and insights on this edition of the Climate Conference. It was a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure and a great honor to be here. In Focus will be back soon 
with analysis of the biggest news issues. In the meantime, you can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher and other platforms. Just search for In Focus by The Hindu. We'll see you soon.